0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, It'll be Matthew, Matthew 18, where we left off about a month ago. And it's been such a long time that I've been out of the pulpit, and I very much appreciate Keith uh, doing some extra time there in the pulpit to give me some time away, but I'm very rusty now. So it'll take a while to get the clogs out. Good to be back in the pulpit to share the Word of God with you and there's a great sense of gravity as I come this morning, as I do each time, uh, asking God to help me to be faithful with preaching the whole counsel of God and faithful with the only responsibility I have in this hour is to preach his word. And that may he uh, then take it and deliver it in the way that he would use it in all of our lives to bring forth that, that fruit that he desires. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, although we covered the first four verses the last time we were together, I'll continue down through verse 14 as we now turn to our attention to the word of God. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life lame and maimed rather than have two hands or two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is stray? And if one should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." Our gracious Father, as we come to this text this morning, open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. That we might hear our God speak to us through the preaching of the word. And we pray that you would stir our hearts up so that we would receive it and bring forth the fruit that would be pleasing to you. So may we have our hearts in tune This morning to that which you would have for us and pray the spirit of God would would now work in the way that we even hear this to to be worshipful to our great God who has given us such a a great passage as this that is before us. And we pray that you would be glorified in now sending forth your word with power in the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to plan to spend some time in this chapter. As this chapter begins, it begins with the apostles asking a question. It's not the last time they're going to ask this question. It's not the first time they've actually thought about it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They wanted to know. And while there is greatness in the kingdom of Let it not be our concern this morning who is the greatest in comparison to one another, but what rather characterizes greatness. And the contents of this chapter will always be relevant for us as it addresses greatness in our relationships. In fact, I've entitled the message... um, as I've printed it out three different times, but on my copy and what the title should be in your liturgy, Greatness and Humility. Because that's the essence of what he's getting at here in this passage that we'll be looking at this morning. See, life is defined in terms of Relationships. And you will see what characterizes greatness in this chapter is not about all the works that a Christian go out and does on the outside, but the character of the man on the inside in relationship with others. That's what's going to define greatness. And Jesus takes up the question he begins to answer it. He does so in three parts in this chapter. To be a great Christian... You must be humble. And that's what the first 14 verses are really about as he illustrates it with a child. But secondly, in verses 15 through 20, you must be willing to confront a brother correctly. And then third, where we're going to end up in this chapter, is you must be a deeply forgiving person. Verses 21 through 35. Now, last month, uh, when we left off this passage, we had just gotten started at the beginning when Jesus began to explicitly answer the question, who is the greatest? And we saw in verses 1 through 4, that's where he begins to answer that. And this first section, which goes from verses 1 through 14, where he begins to take a child, a number of times he mentions children. He begins to take up the question by illustrating a child that he brings into their midst in the first section we see a number of references here and he's going to answer the question how to be great in terms of children and the point here is humility humility in verse 3 Jesus begins to answer the question that the disciples have about greatness By instructing them how one even enters the kingdom of God. He's going to have to answer that one first before he can even get to how to be great in the kingdom. How do you enter the kingdom in the first place? And every person who enters the kingdom does not do so as a great person, but as a small person. That's how he answers the question. Surely I say to you unless you are converted and become as little children you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so every person who enters the kingdom does not do so as a great person but as a small person. And that takes conversion Now, that conversion that Jesus is speaking of in verse 3 requires a total change of the viewpoint of oneself. That's what conversion is. It's changing my viewpoint of oneself. And that requires humility. And before going any further, we need to just pause right here for just a moment. We're talking about greatness. How to be great in the kingdom But the first thing Jesus does is is he's asking us, you've got to make sure you're in the kingdom. And so let's just pause here for just a moment. Have you been truly converted? Have you truly had a change of viewpoint of yourself? Has your life been changed from a self-interested focus to a God-interested focus? That's what conversion is. Conversion requires a change of values. That's what it does. It changes your system of values. So that what is now important for you is not about your fame or your status or your fortune, but God's glory through your humility. That's what conversion is. Has that happened? God's glory through your humility. And mine, humility. Now Jesus had to get that first point on the table first. How do you even get into the kingdom? Before he can then take up the question of greatness, which he begins to do at verse 4, and there he begins to explicitly answer the question, therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now to be great in the kingdom, one has to maintain that childlike character of humility in which he first entered the kingdom. And that's the point that he was doing in verse 3, expressing how you even get in the kingdom. And to be great, you have to maintain that humility. It's not growing in greatness in the way that we would define life and greatness according to that old system of values, but rather quite the contrary. Greatness is defined in terms of smallness. Glory in terms of humility. Life in terms of death. And blessing in terms of serving and giving. Those are the great ones who are able to maintain that childlike character of humility in which he first entered the kingdom of God. So to be a great Christian, you have to maintain that childlike character of humility in which you first entered the kingdom in the first place. You have to be like a little child. And you have to be that way as it relates to everybody else in your relationships. Now the rest of the passage from verses 5 through 14, which is we're going to spend the rest of our time here, is really an extension of that particular truth. It's an extension of application of that humility that we are to maintain as children as it relates to others. And as he does so, he gives us three admonitions... And then he's going to give us these warnings or these applications as it pertains to humility and childlikeness as it relates to others. And all of that is in the answer of greatness in the kingdom. The first admonition he's going to give to us is in verse 5. And he's going to admonish there, to receive one another The second admonition is going to be in verses six through nine, and there he is going to turn it into a negative that we are not to hinder one another in our pursuit of Christ. And number three is another negative in verses 10 through 14, that we are to admonish, he, the admonition not to despise one another. Now, all three of those points he's using an illustration of the children to receive one another, not to hinder one another, and not to despise one another, as he then gives us these applications of greatness and seeking God's glory through your humility. With each one of those applications, he also gives an incentive or a reason of why we should obey that particular admonition. So let's pick up that first admonition in verse 5. The first application relating to one another as little children in humility is to receive one another. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now the incentive or the reason is right there at the end. Because when you receive one another, it's, you're receiving Christ. That's the, the reason, the argument. Now, what does that have to do with a church like ours? We have little children in our service from the time that they are baptized and even before and all the way up through the time that we go and bury them in the cemetery. We, we have. What does that have to do with a church like ours? Has everything to do with a church like ours. Because when we come into the kingdom of heaven, we do so with a lot of differences between ourselves, do we not? In some cases, those differences are very, very, very minor. The appearance can be a difference or the clothes you wear, or how you carry yourself. Some of our habits are different from others. Some of our protocols of manners are different in the way that we were raised from the way others were raised. The sound of your voice is different. It's very distinct to you and to no one else here. Your age, or how many children you have in your family, or where you are in your station in life, and all those things make you distinctive, and make you different from everybody else in Christ's kingdom. And all those things I just mentioned irritate other people. Even Christian people. Even people here. There are some Christian somewhere that's put off by the way you comb your hair or the way you speak, or the sound of your voice, or just the way you laugh. Distinctive to you. And some think it's great, but other, there's someone out there that is irritated by that. And you're smiling because you know I'm right. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is, this is how we are. And I'm just touching on the really minor things and the way that we sometimes irritate each other. It's just being who we are. Some people are social misfits. And others are the life of the party. And anywhere from the outcast all the way to the incast and everywhere in between, wherever you are on the spectrum of that, there's some people that are going to be irritated for you simply being the way you are wherever you are. And so he uses a child in this illustration, and the characteristic of the child here is a difference in age. And he's using this in the context of the disciples as he's teaching a lesson here. And he takes up a small child, and he has a distinctive characteristic in age, and, and he's going to illustrate a much broader point. And we all have a tendency as we grow older and mature in, in not really receiving the young little brats the way we used to be as a little brat, right? We all have a tendency to get irritated at some point or at some level with little children. Maybe because their immaturity irritates older kids or older adults. So we kind of marginalize them. Or perhaps we're above now their playfulness. And Jesus uses the little child just like that in one of those differences as an example of a whole category of people that we might tend not to warmly receive because in some way they're different from us, or in something about them irritates us. Because of that particular tendency, with whether, it, whether it is with this child or the broader application of, of the way someone combs their hair or laughs or, or, or whatever it is, we tend to regard those kinds of people as lesser than ourselves. But you know, it's those kind of things that divide the world out there today. And it's those very little, minor kinds of things that can be right here in the body of heritage. Those little kinds of things can divide us here. We even see examples of this in the disciples, they grew irritated and were impatient. At those who were different. The disciples were annoyed. And the very next chapter, in chapter 19, when they were bringing the little children to Jesus, and then the little children were brought to him that he might put their hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. No, 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 no. That's, ex- that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. And how quickly do the disciples forget the very illustration the chapter before and how quickly we forget just like the disciples at the very point that he's getting at here to us on another occasion that we've already looked at back in Matthew 15 when a woman approaches Jesus and pleading with Jesus to have mercy on her and her demon-possessed daughter the disciples said and his disciples came and urged Jesus saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. She's bothering us, Lord. She's annoying us. Send her away. It's just like we are. We're there in our spirit sometimes when it doesn't happen on the outside, but it's the way we think. It's our posturing internally that Jesus is getting at here. You want to be great in the kingdom? You need to get this point. James in his epistle that we read this morning warned against being partial toward the rich or the wealthy or the man of status or of high education that comes into our midst while despising, thinking down upon or belittling those who are poor or uncomely or uneducated or social misfits or who laughs funny. Perhaps they dress funny or they act funny. Yet we are to genuinely, earnestly receive them just like we would anyone else. And in so doing, you're receiving Jesus. To be a great Christian, the Lord went first to humility because that is the main problem. That's the main problem. That's the old self of self-interest and self Promotion. But you have been converted if you have been converted. And you've got a different set of values. And if you're going to receive Jesus, you have to receive even the least of the saints of His. The church is the one place on earth The one place on earth where anyone could go and put their faith in Jesus no matter what his race or his education or his ethnic background or his station in life or the way he talks or his accent or the clothes he wears or the way he parts his hair or the way he laughs. And he ought to know that he is genuinely received. When someone joins the church, as we've had a lot in this past year. He enters into covenant. With God and his people. And we bind ourselves to each other as family members. And the incentive or the reason we are to receive one another. As the same for the lowly as well as for the elite for the poor as the rich as the slave as the employer is because when we do so we receive Jesus whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me so the question is to what extent have i given to engage the brethren. The brethren in this church and the brethren outside of this church to warmly receive them. And that's the measure to some degree to the extent of understanding of what our Lord is talking about here. And as much as you did it to them, you did it To me. So this reception of the brethren is the extent of your humility. And it will be measured in terms of Christian greatness. The second application is given to us there beginning at verse 6. And this application is in terms of a negative. In relating to one another as little children not to hinder... Not to hinder someone in their pursuit of Christ and holiness. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or uh, whoever puts a stumbling block in the way, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. You know what a millstone is. It's one of those big old stones about this big and about this thick and... um, I guarantee it weighs a lot more than you do. And if it were tied around your neck and it were cast into the middle of the sea, it would be better if that were to happen to you than if this were to happen to you. Now the word there is if you in the New King James says if if you cause your brother whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. The word causes and to sin is actually one word, and that's why stumbling block is uh, translated in some. But the word there is, a word in the Greek means to put an impediment in someone's way, to cause one to stumble over an impediment that you put in their way. And the idea is you are not to hinder one another in their pursuit of Christ, Whether that be a little child, or whether it be anyone else. That could be a new convert. It could be the most commonest of God's people. It could be any of us. We are not to hinder one another in any way regarding their pursuit of Christ and holiness not to put stumbling blocks in their way i had a friend who was on a on a, on the a track meet in high school and his discipline was hurdles Um, If there was, if if I did anything in track, that would be the last thing I would do. It would be so frustrating to have to run, and then you have to jump over this thing and jump over it, but that's the point. You have these hindrances that could be stumbling blocks, and one day in a track meet, he, um, he stumbled over a hurdle, and he fell, and to everybody's amazement, he got back up and finished second in the entire race. But... That's what hurdles do. They're impediments. You have to get over these impediments in order to pursue the goal. And Jesus was saying, if you intentionally put hurdles, or even unintentionally put these hindrances in the way of others to cause them to stumble, it would be better just to have that millstone tied around your neck and cast into the depth of the sea. Now in chapter 19, next chapter, the way that Christ was receiving little children, the disciples were rebuking. And perhaps they were busy on this one occasion. They were considering the imposition of little children then being somewhat of a distraction to what they were doing. Perhaps they were doing larger things for the kingdom. Uh, and yet, Jesus says, no, 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 let the little children come unto me. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So we have application to little children here. Jesus wants to receive them and make sure that their path is not hindered in their pursuit of him. And by way of extension, that's going to go out to us all. Anyone who believes in me, he says to the most commonest, humble people, to those who are pursuing Christ. We all know how easy it is for a young child without any discernment, just simply following an adult without questioning his actions, to go off in a, a wrong direction so long as he's following the adult, and the adult is going in the wrong direction. And the incentive here that he gives to us, coupled with this or the argument or the reason why we should do this is that the lord attached to it is so sto- so sobering because he says it would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and cast into the sea than if you were to do this this is why paul spoke of limiting your use of your personal spiritual liberties to keep others from stumbling or from hindering them in their pursuit of holiness. So part of our humility that Christ is getting at here is an awareness of others and their potential weakness. Humility. When we turn ourselves away from the self-interest and focus and, and, and promotion, and we have been converted so, that we are all about God's glory through our humility. We become aware of others in the context as we relate to them. See, it's about relation in our character. So, one of the characteristics of genuine humility is the awareness of oneself in the context of others and your potential impact on those with whom you relate. I need to say that one more time to make sure we have it. One of the characteristics of genuine humility, of the characteristic of Christian greatness, is the awareness of yourself in the context of others and the potential impact that you will have upon them with whom you are relating. Now, Verses 8 and 9 then moves beyond the little child right to your own self when you cause yourself to stumble. And the Lord is cautioning that if we hinder someone else, the consequences are fatal. But if you are having trouble getting into the kingdom because your hands or your feet or your eyes are hindering you, then it's better to face drowning than what you will face if you're hindering other people, and it's better to at least get into the kingdom of heaven with a few less members of your own body. And whatever part of your body is causing you to yourself to stumble, it's better just to have that removed, that impediment removed, rather than you to have all of your body and to be cast into the eternal lake of fire. If your hand or foot is causing you to stumble, now if that is your stumbling block or your hindrance, better to have one of them cut off and to be cast away so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. If that is impeding you, or if your eye is, is that which hinders you, that's your hurdle, that's your stumbling block, it would be better to lose that than to lose life itself. When you ignore Jesus' warnings here, it shows how little regard you have for what Jesus did when He left glory to come here in this fallen world, in this sinful world that we live, and He lived a sinless life to die a cruel death and a humiliating death upon the cross. And when you disregard someone else's life That was given in place of yours. And he did it not merely by cutting off a hand or a foot or plucking out an eye. He gave his entire body for you to be saved. So that whatever it causes you to stumble or your friends to stumble. Remove the impediment. What is it that causes you? or hinders you from your pursuit of holiness in Christ? What is it that hinders your pursuit? Some of your friends? Entertainment? Recreations? Relationships? Lusts? The Lord is warning us all here. He warned us about the same kind of thing in Matthew chapter 5 that we've already covered. Warnings about sexual lusts keeping people from getting into the kingdom of heaven. And those lusts are powerful forces. How many millions and millions of people will be kept out of the kingdom because they would not depart from their sexual lusts? How many people do you think that is? That particular issue is keeping a staggering number of people from getting into the kingdom of heaven. You could populate entire countries of people that will be cast into eternal lake of fire because they would not deal with their adulterous spirit and surrender it to Christ. You have to be converted. And when you are you're going to be intent upon the glory of God in your humiliation, whatever that may mean. To be a great Christian, we have to maintain the humility we first had when we come into the kingdom by genuinely receiving one another, by living with careful attention to others around us so that we are not hindering their pursuit of holiness. And I think I could go off on an entire message right here on parents. And how parents should not be a hindrance to their children's pursuit of holiness. And be a stumbling block to them by the way you live your life. But third, another application which is an extension of his principle back in verse 4. As it relates to one another. And little children is not to despise one another. Verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's the incentive. A great Christian or greatness itself is defined with humility, a humble Christian who does not despise others, not even a little child. The word despise means to look down upon somebody. It's a spirit or or an attitude about this, and it can come out in the way that we interact with other people. To look down on someone else is to see yourself, or your ideas, or your way of thinking, or something about you that is higher up, or more right, or more cool, or a little more wise, or better, or more acceptable than another. And when you despise another, whether it be wives despising their husbands, or members despising their elders, or husbands despising their children and wives or despising your next-door neighbor, or despising the person in the pew in front of you, you think little about them in some way, or something about them. And the incentive or the argument that Christ gives here for the reason why not to do this is because God highly values them. Don't look down upon what God highly values so that even their angels who are tending to them see my Father's face in heaven. And He values these little ones so much that He has assigned angels to their care so that when you look down upon them it is a reflection upon the way that you look upon your heavenly Father. You devalue What God prizes, do not despise one another. Have you ever been offended because someone has insulted somebody else that you're very close to or you love? You know, when I was growing up, and I was a little kid, that was the thing you would do, right? Your mama don't you talk about my mama? it's always about your mama thing. And then you get into the daddy thing and who can beat up whose daddy. And pretty soon you're all talking about someone else's loved ones and kin. And you're despising, right? You're looking down upon. You're insulting. You're thinking about this and you're intentionally doing it in this immature self-focused state that you were in as a child. And that's the idea here. God is greatly offended when you despise one that he values so highly. And while you as a boy didn't like people talking about your mama that way, God doesn't like others talking about his children, not even the least of his people in a way that's derogatory or showing contempt for or looking down or belittling their ideas or their ways of thinking or who they are. As their angels in heaven continually see the Father's face. And the point here is that even the most common, even the smallest child, the most common of the people who believe in Christ are given that kind of attention that their angels have access to God in their behalf. So rather than looking down on one another, or even the least of the brethren, we should have the utmost care for them. And that's what he's going to illustrate in verses 11 through 14. He illustrates this point with a parable of a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. And genuine humility that does not despise one of the little ones will care even for the straying sheep. They're treated as valuable. And we are to seek them out. This is a major ministry that Christians have for one another, and especially that of elders. And I think you need to see how this portion of the passage ties into the next portion of the passage in verses 15 through 20, the passage that I Uh, Is probably undoubtedly the one that you're most familiar with and that you frequently reference. But you have to see how this portion fits before we get to that portion. When you pursue an errant brother or someone that's offended you and sinned against God, it's important before you get there to have the character of love and compassion and the genuine care that we are to have in all humility before we start that process. Where most of the mistakes are made, I believe, in Matthew eighteen fifteen through twenty, is in that process is not coming at it in humility, treating an errant brother like a little child. So, in verse fourteen, the motivation or the incentive here, at the conclusion of the passage, is that the Father in heaven doesn't want to see any of the little ones like this perish. At the beginning, we have a straying sheep. And at the end, we have a concern that God does not want them to perish. And that needs to be our concern too. So don't despise them. Don't think little. Don't look down upon them. It's easy to do that. I confess to you, as a pastor, it is easy to do that. I have done that. You have done that. We do that. And we have to check ourselves. Some people are not very valuable or, or productive to the flock. Maybe they don't have a lot of giftedness or they haven't contributed in a lot of ways and it's easy to despise them or to marginalize them. Maybe they were kind of a nuisance and they... And they stray, and they're gone, and it's easy to think, well, it doesn't really matter much anyway, I'm glad they're gone. I didn't really like them much. Don't do that. That's what our Lord's talking about here. To be great, it's going to have to be characterized with humility. Seeking God's glory. Not about what you like. See, every one of us, if we're to take an image where every one of us here matters, including those who are straying. When we have people leave our congregation, and when they do so, and in their minds they think they have some legitimate reason. Now, we might not feel they have a legitimate reason. But in their minds, they have a legitimate reason for leaving this congregation. Some spiritual consideration. Our intention, usually, is to let them go and yet maintain a good and cordial relationship with people like that. What that means is, is we don't have a lot of debate with those people. Perhaps they've been influenced by something that we feel is problematic. But it is apparent to us that in their mind, they have a spiritual justification for leaving. They may even be moving moving away from some of the positions that we have maintained or held here. But I don't want to burn my bridge in the way that I respond to them. And that response does not mean that I don't care about them when I let them depart. I want you to draw this distinction. But if we have people in our congregation that begins to wander for illegitimate reasons, I mean, wander into sin, there is not one of those here that doesn't, really matter any of us who are connected with that person and you know they're wandering into iniquity or wandering into worldly things or worldly pursuits that person matters and you cannot say to yourself well people really didn't get along with her or he doesn't really matter you can't do that your father your heavenly father cares about you And he cares about them, and he cares about everyone here, and he doesn't want them to perish. You don't want to think down on someone or marginalize them. You have to stop and remind yourself of this tendency to place a high value on someone that you generally will give a high value to someone if they had a good station in life, or they're well-educated, or they're getting along, and they have a wonderful personality. And yet... We would be really concerned for those, but we have a greater tendency to marginalize the more common or the difficult sheep, or the least of these, as Jesus was illustrating. Yet every one of those people are of an interest to God, and we have to have the right spirit I find myself constantly keeping watch over my spirit and constantly adjusting it toward people. Because we tend to evaluate one another in terms of non-essentials or the, or the externals. Rather than each one has an eternal soul equally valued in the sight of God, and that's got to be my heart in this. So to be a great Christian requires me to be a humble Christian and to pursue those. And it's not just me, it's you too. You too are required to pursue those who are straying into iniquity, straying into worldly pursuits, straying away from the God that they once loved. Not to despise them, To go after them. Go after them with love. Go after them with care. Because your heavenly Father highly values them. So to be a great Christian, you have to be a humble Christian. To maintain that humility in which you first entered the kingdom of God in the first place when you were converted from a self-focused manner into a God-focused manner so that you can be centered upon the glory of God even through your humility, even through difficult times and what these difficult things are that he's speaking about. It's a different way of living. And that humility will be maintained as you receive those who are pursuing Christ as you are aware of yourself in their context, so that you do not hinder them in their pursuit. And as you value all those who are in the kingdom from the least to the greatest, and do not despise what God highly values. To care enough about them, to go after them even when they're straying, and they don't even like you very much either. Growing in Christian greatness is about growing in humility as it relates to others. This is the essence of the gospel life. And that's exactly what Christ demonstrated throughout his entire earthly ministry before our eyes. And we are to be like him. It's not possible for you to do in your flesh. He's asked you to do something impossible for you to do. But He requires us to do this which He has now given us grace to do. And the possibility is ours to follow in that way. And you'll know greatness by being low. Not way up here. May God give us the grace to live great lives for His sake. Our gracious Heavenly Father... What you have told us here is impossible for us to do in our flesh. But you have converted us. And thankful we are that you have converted us. But we too often get our focus upon ourselves or our interest or our self-affluence or peace or not wanting to be bothered. And, and we, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we do not prize our relationship with others and the things that they have, and the life that concerns them as we prize it ourselves. Forgive us, we pray. And grant us, O Lord, your help and your grace to live this passage out, and to love each other, and to pursue each other, and to be humble people. We pray that you would be honored as we do this, and we grow in this. May we help each other to grow. May we help each other in love and true, genuine care. May we pursue each other. May we pursue holiness. May we pursue Christ. Lord, as we close this time in hearing from Your Word, we pray that Your Spirit would Address the matters in our own spirit that needs to be addressed and repented of, confessed and changed. And we pray that you would bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness in each one of our lives (coughs) and in the life of this body corporately. Be glorified in our humility, we pray. That is our longing, that is our request whatever that may mean for us individually and corporately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.